Welcome to First Fuel, a podcast bringing you perspectives on the role of energy efficiency, energy management and demand response in the energy transition taking place in Australia and around the world. I'm Luke Menzel, CEO of the Energy Efficiency Council, and this week I'm joined by Tim Wilson. Tim is the Assistant Minister for Industry, Energy and Emissions Reduction in the Morrison Government, and this is the second in a series of special episodes we're doing with key players from right across the political spectrum in the lead-up to this year's federal election. Now... As we record, Tim is coming off a marathon all-nighter there at Parliament House. So, Tim, welcome, and thanks for hauling yourself off the couch and getting in front of the microphone for us. Thanks, Luke. But yes, I am a bit battle-weary from uh, Parliament, which sat till 5.30am this morning. So, uh, just so you know, if I do make some grand announcements, (laughs) I'm not supposed to. This isn't live, so it's fine. We can just go back and edit it all out, right? That's right, Luke. Depending on what it is, we'll either hold you to it or edit it out. <laughs> yeah, like, well, we'll see. Let's see where we are, if I'm still smiling at the end of this. But let's go. Well, Tim, given you uh, just pulled an all-nighter, I'm going to start with a really easy question, and it goes to your postgraduate qualifications. Um, for us at the Energy Efficiency Council, it's not, it's not often that we go into brief an incoming minister and they actually have postgraduate qualifications in energy and carbon management. So I was, I was interested to know, you know, what prompted you to undertake study in that space and, and what you got out of it? Um, it's a good question, actually, because not many people actually know that I've done it. Um, back in 2008, we were kind of going in those debates around um, emissions trading schemes and like I was 28 doing a lot of policy work I was mostly focused on trade policy and intellectual property rights but I just saw the emergence increasingly of climate as a conversation of policy and frankly actually how little people understood about it including me you know I'm the first to say you know I don't know enough about this the solution is go and learn more so I actually went off and studied carbon accounting first at Swinburne did that then actually was continuing and became more and more interested was doing a lot of work in low carbon tech and intellectual property we can talk about that if you want separately uh and eventually went well actually i started looking around for postgraduate qualifications and there weren't many um i actually Hmm. found one at murdoch and it was a um one looking at specifically kind of the science of you know climate change but also then the practical application of policy and what that meant and so that's what it was it's actually just about upskilling and knowing that you've got to understand it and that you know there are a lot of things I, I think you know at the time I was like every other Australian and I think a lot of Australians are still in this place I didn't know what to believe I didn't know who to trust I didn't actually have any it wasn't sure what people were saying was accurate or inaccurate mm-hmm. didn't understand the variabilities and so um, that's what led me to actually go and study it so that I could actually work in the space mm-hmm. and speak, not necessarily from a position of authority, but at least be much more confident. And it was intellectually interesting because, of course, uh, I had to dust off some of my old VCE um, textbooks in advanced maths and the like because you go and study physics and the components of applied physics and trust me. They're not my natural strengths. Um, but more recently, I actually did a course at Oxford Uni um, looking at business to net zero and some of the evolution in policy that's continued from there and where we're going now. Because, you know, I, I, I see this whole conversation, um, uh, you know, yes, there's obviously a very critically important environmental component to the conversation. But really what we're talking about is building the industrial future of, well, our country and the world and how we're going to do that in a more sustainable way um, and that it's heavily economics and if anyone knows my history I'm very interested in economics and how that plays out so that's what kind of led me to do it and it served me frankly I think very well because 
I'm still somewhat distressed about the literacy in, in this place and mm. elsewhere about um, uh, some areas of policy. But, but don't misunderstand, I'm still learning too because it's like learning an entirely new discipline that continues to evolve. Well, I mean, you, you've gone to the, what was occurring to me as you were talking, which is the, is the kind of the average literacy on these topics um, in, in Parliament, mm. across, across the Parliament. Um, obviously, this has been a topic of, of great contention, certainly over the last 10 or 12 years. So there's some sort of uh, natural literacy, I suppose, that accrues to people just having participating in these debates. But do you, do you think that the, the, the nuance gets understood or expressed in an effective way in, in the Parliament or indeed in the public debate? Uh, no, I don't. But, you know, and I, that's not a, uh, I think that's reflective of everybody who's in this discussion. You know, everybody, many, many years ago, I was on a, a program, it's still on the ABC, I think, called The Drum, and, you know, I was a panellist and everything else. Oh, it was back in the debates around, I think, at the time, it was called the Carbon Pollution Reduction Scheme, but, um, but you know, ultimately, the, car, the carbon tax debate back then, whatever people want to interpret it as. And um, I had a pollster who came in on the panel with me and was off camera complaining why won't scientists just answer in simple answers you know if we don't do this the great barrier reef will die if we don't do this you know people what we know will have um people won't be able to afford to heat their homes and it's like because it's it's complex it's great it's nuanced and there's trade-offs and this is ultimately what public policy is about which is finding the the balance in those trade-offs and of course you can easily use language which is really one of the most important things to discard or overvalue those trade-offs and because it also of course plays out in different parts of the country you know when we talk I did a panel session earlier in the week with uh, the Clean Energy Council and they were talking about uh, about you know the, the so-called climate wars and I know that's a nice neat little framing I don't like it because it's binary it means you're for or against and that's not really you know, really logical. It's about, well, who's going to pay? How are they going to pay on what time horizons and where's the proportion of burden going to fix? And of course, depending on where some of those things play out, and of course, where there even is a burden because the technology, which uh, competitive technology is meaning that in many cases, a burden isn't need to be incurred, can ultimately shape perception. So nuance, no, it's not very good in parliament. Um, but that's why I focus more on what do we need to do to build literacy? Mm-hmm. Because then at least you can have a more honest conversation um, but actually literacy in energy, climate, um, lots of other issues from economics to yep. other areas of public policy are pretty grey. When it comes to that that topic of, I guess, the, the trade-offs between economics, um, uh, social outcomes, environmental outcomes, like they're kind of at the heart of, of, the cl- of climate change. And I suppose to, to, to look beyond our borders for a moment, um, just in terms of the things that excite you about developments around the world, the nations around the world are all grappling with this issue, and there, there's a yeah. there's a there's a whole range of different approaches that are being taken. Is there is there a country around the world that you think is doing a pretty good job of of balancing those competing priorities in terms of of that, this transition to net zero that we're we're all sort of aiming for for 2050? Truthfully, what I learned from other countries is more what not to do, and that doesn't mean they're not doing things well. But I really you know, one of my traditional bugbears is I think the approach that the Kyoto Protocol, and now we're going back in history, but sought to adopt in terms of cutting emissions was very kind of centrally driven, imposition-based um, uh, in terms of its outlook and its approach. And I always thought that was wrong, at least because it didn't bring together all the countries of the world. And, you know, and I've previously argued against the Kyoto Protocol and don't back off from that one iota because I think it it was a flawed methodology to try and address the challenge of climate change. But in saying that, I always said when I said this, I don't agree with the way this agreement's doing it, 
I think that we need to get an agreement that's more voluntary, that is more participatory and more of a partnership model that encourages countries, obviously the developing ones particularly, to be part of the conversation. That's basically what we've got with the Paris Agreement. So I think that's a good outcome. You know, no agreement's perfect, but I reckon it's the right framing to do so. But um, the other reason, because what I'm very interested in is what, what is sustainable climate policy? And this matters particularly when we're talking about multi decadal investments, trying to mobilise private capital and building that sense of partnership. You can't have policies that are good for a moment but will face democratic backlash over time. And the, a classic example is what's kind of emerging in the UK and Europe now with um, rising energy prices. And that's got a lot to do with obviously, you know, Ukraine and Russia and gas and everything else. But that can very quickly corrode that sense of social licence to the point where people in the UK are now saying, well, maybe we're not as full steam ahead on this net zero as we perhaps initially thought. And I think that's a disaster. And I think the the approach um, that we're taking is the right one and not because it's, you know, the government that I'm part of. I really mean that. I can actually book chapters back a decade ago and say the way we're going to get there is through competitive technology and the like. Um, so I think it's more about learning um, what works um, and a lot of it's heavily tempered by where is the democratic will or the requirement to pass things? A lot of the measures that are introduced, for instance, in Europe, basically don't have real democratic uh, license because they come from the European Union. Um, and of course, we saw in the US, you know, um, Obama using regulation um, to try and introduce certain measures. And then, of course, it leading to, you know, a democratic elected President Trump, then basically winding it all back mm -hmm. and and i think that's the vacillation that's actually really damaging for long-term sustainability and climate policy and i think we've seen some of it now in australia but i think we're in a much better place now but the real lesson is every country as, as the paris agreement basically outlines has got to develop their own solution because our economy and the, the nature of our emissions base is actually quite different from other countries. Mm. And it's not just about what your emission base is, but it's also about what your alternative is. You know, I had a group of school kids in my electorate recently who, you know, wanted to know about various technologies. And we talked about geothermal and, you know, they were really excited about some of the stuff that was happening in geothermal overseas. And I said, that's great, but, mm. you know, there's only a select, really a very modest number of places in Australia where geothermal yeah. works. Whereas of course you go across the ditch in New Zealand, it's a completely different conversation. Um, but one of the things I also think is we've got to start talking much more about, you know, frankly, non-sexy parts of this, which with the greatest of respect to you, uh, Luke includes energy efficiency <laughs> because it's not just kind of the hardware side, which everyone gets excited about. It's got to be the software side, the demand management. Yep. And I think we can do a lot more in that space. And I actually think we're doing some really exciting stuff in that space and we're kind of not talking about it enough. And that could actually help other countries do, do what they want to achieve too. Oh, that's music to my ears. Well, well, let's jump into some of the areas where the government's been active. And I suppose, uh, I mean, you know, as we've been catching up um, since you uh, took on this portfolio area back in October, it hasn't escaped your attention, Tim, that I'm a big fan of the National Australian Built Environment Rating System and, and the yes. Commercial Building Disclosure Program. Um, it's one I of my favourites. <laughs> we've all got our pet you know pet things so it's it's nice that at least you were transparent about it. well indeed um i you know I, I do tend to say it's um it's probably the jewel in the crown of australia's energy efficiency policy yeah. because it's been so successful in providing transparency with light touch regulation um that is giving the market information and supporting people to make investments and for those 
the tenants and the folk buying um, large commercial office buildings, um, they know what they're buying and so they get to value energy efficiency. So those investments get, get appropriately valued in the market. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. I suppose that my question is, well, you know, we've got this, we've got this incredible machine that we've built over the last 20 years or so um, in, in Neighbours. Um, there's been conversation over time about expanding the CBD program of, you know, I know there's a, there's an active program that the neighbors team is prosecuting to expand the number of ratings and what sectors they apply to. What are your thoughts as you've been getting your head around neighbors about, you know, the, 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 the increased role it can play over this decade and sort of building on the success of the last couple of decades? Yeah, I think it's a good question. And so there's, there's kind of two parts to that answer. First is what we can do internationally, because mm. I think, where, where the conversation is shifting increasingly, you know, despite the sort of political rhetoric that often exists at international levels, people are saying actually look at some of the stuff we're doing, including buildings, um, and saying actually Australia's got this right. They did that with kind of Engers um, when it was initially um, developed, you know, to yep. become a really sort of kind of gold standard internationally. Yep. Again, it's kind of a software, it's not a hardware thing, but it's important. And Neighbours um, and other ally projects, I think, within that. So I see our opportunities really to build on that in terms of international partnerships to export our knowledge and capacity. And of course, you know, there's jobs and everything with that, but it's actually to help other countries uh, decarbonise. But it's also, how do we sustainably, and I constantly use that word because I think it's just so important for uh, the um, the conversation, move it down from the large scale to you know the mid-sized format, at least in the medium term. So we're looking um, increasingly at uh, what's being done in residential aged care, retirement facilities and retirement living. Um, uh, uh, in fact, we um, the first ratings were funded under in last September to look at, you know, uh, capturing more, but also not... Um, pushing things over the edge, particularly as we shift from um, commercial developments with a sort of commercial focus towards allied or comparable to household environments. Mm. Um, And so I see that as kind of a natural and logical progression over time um, that will build the franchise, build confidence, but also you know, enable things to be road tested along the way so that as we progress progressively down in terms of the structure um, of buildings at the household level, that we've actually got a very high degree of confidence about what's efficient. Um, and we can't, obviously, we already know that, but in terms of what, what we can sell to people to get a greater participation from um, from Australians in the process. But when it comes to, you know, the large f- uh, format CBD um, and the like, the truth is, you know, some of them had um, enormously challenging couple of years as a result of COVID. Yep. The yep. trade-off is that a lot of their buildings have been occupied, so it's been a good time to do that. And I think what we really need to do is have a really good conversation with the sector about their capacity because it varies, you know, out of suburban places um, or suburban uh, uh, commercial developments are probably in a better position to be able to support any transition. Mm-hmm. And, of course, we're starting to see, we're starting to put um, seed funding in things like uh, through Arena we recently funded um, the retrofitting essentially of an energy efficiency building in Brisbane um, to uh, see what can be done there as a demonstration project to really show those interested and those that want to continue to invest not just what you can do when you build new but also um, what you can do in terms of retrofitting which will of course be a critical part of the conversation over kind of the next decade. In terms of the expansion of neighbours and things like the CBD like the the heterogeneity of the commercial building sector is often That's a good word, heterogeneity, isn't it? It's wonderful. It's one of my favourites. Yeah. 
You sound smart. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's a diverse sector, right? Um, yeah. Uh, uh, and there's, you know, there's incredible sophistication in particularly that large, in those large property groups that they've been able yeah. to leverage. They've kind of, they've got the gravitational pull to kind of develop those teams internally. And that's been a part of Australia's success story. And when you get into some of the other commercial building types, yes, there's a, there's a role for, you know, we, we would say expanding CBD, but you've got to, you've got to do it in a way that makes sure that they have the support they need to, to sort of leverage off that. Well, I think that's 100% right. But the other thing also is, of course, experience and skills is an important part of this. And if, if anyone, as you know, um, for their sins has followed my political career up until this day, prior to being um, uh, in this role, I was in the economics committee um, overseeing the banking sector. And one of the things I you know, truthfully learned with the banking sector is when we introduce legislation, you know, go with the big banks first. One, because uh, they obviously have the capital to address new areas of regulation and absorb it, that cost in more successfully than some of the smaller banks. But of course, through that process, there's a lot of learning. And then of course, for the smaller banks over time, they take longer to get there, but they are able to adopt a lot of learning mm-hmm, of big mm-hmm. banks to do it successfully. And of course, as we do move down the value chain, the same thing is going to happen in energy efficiency. And so it's just about how we get that speed and that and that focus right, but how we also make sure we have the workforce. The workforce around energy efficiency, and we've sort of been looking at this already, is one of going to be one of the biggest challenges we're going to face in achieving just in that policy area alone and let alone everything else we're going to be doing, um, like the engineer, engineer's demand and the like as part of um, the, trend, the, the, you know, the path to net zero to 2050. 100%. And that'll be, that'll be music to, um, to the members of, of my sector that are listening in because it is one of the, the most challenges. music going on at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> what I would say is that our, our members are facing massive skills gaps. Um, there's a lot yeah. of demand for support both on energy efficiency but also energy management and importantly emissions reduction and they're, they're often going to um, members of the Energy Efficiency Council um, for, for advice and strategic advice on, on that uh, in the business community and it's, you know, exacerbated by the pandemic, absolutely, yep. um, but this, this was absolutely an issue pre-pandemic and one of the things that I grapple with is okay well we can we can sort of build castles out of clouds about all the emissions we're going to reduce in the next 10 years but um, you need the people on the ground um, uh, to do it and that you know there's a bit of that which is a vet question there's a bit of that which is a a tertiary question and the kind of qualifications that are in the market and what people are choosing to do but there's another big part of it which is like you know folk that are already in the workforce in this industry or transitioning into this industry and how we upskill them and it's and doing that in a way that works for them which is going to be really important i think i'm just going to agree with that because that will be music to your members ears (laughs) (laughs) well at least it gives a lot to do you know, both of us are going to be gainfully employed for a while now indeed we've got that to be thankful for I do have a, a note here from, from the team to alert you all that the National Energy Efficiency Conference will be taking place in person in May in Melbourne, um, 25th and 26th of May. Tim, you're still there. Um, we might know what uh, our future holds on the 25th or 26th of May. Um, fingers crossed. Yeah, but no matter what happens, I'd hope that you'd think I would be an entertaining presenter regardless of, uh, uh, regardless of whether I've got I... grand titles or not. I'm happy to pencil you in right here and right now. Okay, so well. let's let's do that. I'll uh, I'll talk to your team. Um, anyway, um, tickets are on sale. Um, we, we're we're really looking forward to um, seeing you all in person again, uh, rather than than online. Um, so uh, to find out the details, there'll be a full program released in the next couple of weeks. But you can get the the high level at eec.org.au forward slash conference. 
Hey, um, I want to talk a bit about Rizzy, as you've no doubt heard um, uh, since taking on this space. Um, the average quality of uh, residential housing stock is pretty poor in Australia, um, mm. particularly buildings that were, that were built before standards, minimum standards were brought in before 2005. Um, where you and I both live in Victoria, the average NATAS rating is 1.8 for pre-2005 homes. It's actually illegal to sell a new home that's got a NATHERS rating under six stars these days. So there's a big gap to make out. And the kind of those, uh, the impact of that, as we know, sort of uh, is greatest on low-income earners, renters, folk that are in yeah. the, in, in, not in a position to necessarily fix their own own house um, as middle and upper income earners can, probably can. Um you know, I know the government's sort of been working away at a, at a range of initiatives to to make a contribution to fixing this stuff and noting there's sort of a shared responsibility here between the states and the feds. But what are your thoughts on on how we start to make a real dent in that in that sort of legacy issue of poor quality housing? Well, the the, the legacy problem is not an insurmountable one, um, uh, and I think introducing um, limitations on what can essentially be traded and as part of that sale process, increasing obligations um, uh, is, is probably, you know, because that's actually one of the times where people actually do invest in their homes, you know, mm-hmm. on a practical level. It's often a pre-sale. I mean, of course, we all go through this process and do some sort of renovation when you're about to sell to make the place look um, better and you think, why didn't I do that a decade ago? But there's actually a reason you didn't do it a decade ago. It's because there's a thing called cost and people still continue to confront that. And, and that, that's everybody. You know, I've, we're currently looking at doing this in my own household around some of the problems we have with, um, we don't have any insulation in our home um, now that we bought it without insulation, you know, and we're going to go through that process, but it's not an insignificant cost. Uh, and these are exactly the same choices that Australians um, face every day. But I think really for us, um, if we're going to be successful, we have to start by one, building that sense of literacy. I still think literacy are pretty basic measures around improving household energy efficiency is still very low. Um, and, you know, that shouldn't be an excuse, but I think we've got to acknowledge it because if you want to understand how to persuade people to change your behaviour, you've got to start with understanding where they are, which is relatively disengaged, mm. um, and shift that conversation over time and and really hit some of those critical moments said things like at points of scale, at points mm. of sale. Um, but the other thing is, of course, to increase transparency so that people can then make informed decision making. And of course, uh, you know, I'm a somebody who believes in free choice, um, and and partly because I want people to be empowered to be part of a solution. Um, mm-hmm. And so, whether it's the energy efficiency on white goods and the like, um, or in homes, um, it's got to be how do we actually inject that information. And not just kind of the, you know, the stamp, this is what this is rated today, but from a private perspective, it's start to inform people about the, what the tail cost is, because of course, we often know in investing in energy efficiency, there's high upfront cost, long tail. Yep. And so the other trade off with that is, well, you know, I'm not announcing government policy, but we, I know we see this in some areas of, um, for instance, you know, solar and batteries increasing the conversation about well, what role can be played in terms of finance to incentivise people to take advantage and to see the opportunities that exist there. Is there adaptability frameworks around things in terms of up, high upfront cost in energy efficiency if people want to factor that into their to their life cycle to take kind of the sting out of it? But, of course, we also do things like we've got the Guide to Environmentally Sustainable Homes um, which is uh, which is clearly focused on um, how do we improve literacy and awareness because yeah I wrote an op-ed about this for the Daily Telegraph just after um, New Year about energy efficiency and just you know actually how simple practical things can actually 
you know, as you know, saving quite a lot of money at the residential level. And so much of it's um, conventional wisdom, but somehow, you know, we've all forgotten it, like, you know, the fact that obviously things like turning off lights and that sort of thing. But, you know, that, um, you know, my grandmother always used to have one of those draft blockers um, under the uh, the laundry door. Why? Because yeah. it stopped a lot of heat getting out. I mean, it's it's all, that's obviously at the simple level, but but what are the practical things we can do to empower people to be part of the solution? And that is actually where I think it is, both in the short term, but then the tail in the long term and, and the role of government. And so I'm very interested in that kind of conversation because I think that can do a fair bit to address the historical and legacy problems. But also, again, so that we're making sure we take people with us, because uh, if we want people who are renting out, you know, housing stock, and I'm a landlord myself, uh, you know, the, the, it's, it's driven by economics most of the time. People are happy to take some degree of upfront investment, but a lot of people aren't because they just see, obviously, they've still got their own mortgages to pay and the like too. I think that, that finance space is really interesting and the and also you know the the interest from from the finance sector in kind of uh, mm. you know supporting this transition but all they kind of need the frameworks in order to do that so you won't be surprised to hear we're pretty pretty involved in some of the work around residential disclosure one of the things that i've been keenly interested in making sure comes out of that process is something a, a disclosure framework which is going to give the banks what they need to build financial products around it. Yeah, Disclosure, you know, I, I suppose there's two success factors. Well, there's probably three. There's that, the, the, the finance piece. Um, there's something which is intelligible to the average punter um, and there's consistency across the country so we don't end up with a patchwork of systems. And certainly, you know, the work that the feds have been doing in terms of running a process around that, I think has increased the likelihood we will avoid that that unhappy outcome for for industry. Um, look, I do want to spend a little bit of time talking about industry policy because um, sure. coming out of the, the King Review a couple of years ago, um, this was identified as a, as a really significant area for opportunity. There was, I think, an acknowledgement by um, Grant King and, and his panel, but also um, the government that, you know, there was more that could be done in terms of supporting industry on emissions reductions across a whole range of areas, but it's certainly including energy efficiency. And there's been a, a few announcements on that front, I know the um, the safeguard crediting mechanism is something which is under active in investigation. The the uh, the, uh, the policy that was recommended by the King Review, but certainly as a as a stakeholder, I've, I know I've been asked an awful lot of questions over the last twelve months from your department about you know good ideas for how to support industry on this journey. So I'm interested to know yeah. where you see the big opportunities in that space. How we support um, a, another another sort of very diverse sector um, even more diverse than the commercial building sector in terms of you know uh, modes of production and, and challenges that they face i guess where i see it is like with emissions policy generally which is um, i don't think one size fits all solutions are going to work mm. and in fact um or it's, they're not the preference because i think you know every industry and in its, its circumstance is different and so our objective should be to work with them in how they want to achieve what they want to achieve and that's really what the focus around technology it's not just a slogan but it's like how do we utilize technology and so for instance we had a recent grants program working the food and beverage manufacturers which are very heavy consumers um, of energy as part of the national grid recently about well what what funding do they need to be able to choose energy efficient alternatives now there's there's different components about why we want to do that from reducing demand on the grid to stopping waste and um, etc but but looking at where are these kind of energy intensive sectors and then saying what is it they need to do but but i 
you know, my personal preference, and it kind of goes to some of the things you were saying before, is in the short term, you know, grants might be necessary, particularly because we know that um, some of the best opportunities to reduce our emissions footprint is actually an energy efficiency in the short term and sometimes, uh, in fact, um, often the cheapest options. Um, again, why things like, as you know, um, insulation has always been at the front of the, the, the abatement curve. Mm. But um, increasingly, you know, what is the conversation then about what do we need to do to mobilise private capital mm. in this space? Because, and this I think requires a big adjustment in thinking from government. Um, and I think that's across the board. I think it requires an adjustment in thinking from parliament. We've gone through a period of 30 years where the general objective has been, or 40 years, the objective has been, how do we get government out of things? Mm. Um, I think our mode of governance now has changed. And, um, you know, in some, that creates ideological issues and everything else. But really, it, it, what I don't think anybody wants is a return to interventionism. That's not the objective. The objective is how do we do govern on the basis of partnership and what we mm. need to do to put the art instruments in place and the frameworks in place for people to be able to get on to recognising that I believe in the end that, you know, climate change is ultimately a public policy challenge. So if we want to do that as a collective you know, nation that that we have to be part of being government have to be part of that solution but it's how do we harness and realize that potential so um there's quite a lot in um in this space you know arena obviously is already looking at it through the industrial energy transformation studies program yep. it's been 43 million bucks um to support it to inter to integrate particularly with renewable energy so but it's focused very much on having that dialogue with in, in individual industry sectors and saying how is it we can reasonably support you to achieve what you want to do not what it is we're going to do sometimes it or impose on you sometimes i think there's a shocking parallel between climate policy and indigenous policy um, indigenous policy doesn't work well when canberra tells communities what to do um, indigenous policy works well when canberra talks to communities about how to empower them to solve their own problems and determine their own destiny and I think, you know, those same sort of fundamental principles apply here. That's especially true in the industrial sector because the industrial sector is kind of a very sort of technocratic way of describing. No one sort of rolls into a pub when, and when you ask them what they do, I say, oh, I work in the industrial sector. That's not a thing that happens. They say, <laughs> they say, you know, I, you know, I, I, I can tomatoes or, or whatever I do. Like well, people self-identify. Can I just pick up on that point though? That's a, I think that's 100% right. But, you know, one of the meetings, I don't want to, you know, verbal anybody, but some of the meetings I've been having since I've been in my job is where um, industries or industry communities, for instance, in, you know, you'll have obviously parts of the country where you may have an ecosystem of communities like food manufacturing or canned tomatoes and, mm. and um, citrus fruits and everything else operating communities. And increasingly, they're looking at, well, okay, well, we've obviously got what we can solve as an individual business, but actually regionally we can yep. do things. Yep. Um, and, you know, build a supply chain from how do we reduce our emissions footprint from our activity of what our core business is to, you know, always is lost opportunity. How do we translate that into, a, you know, um, extracts and, and, and waste being turned into biofuels? And then can we actually develop new sectors? And that's why I say it's got to be that partnership approach, because um, I think the, the, geograph the geographic dimension of the energy transition or, or change and path to net zero is not just one that you know people talk about in the context of things like you know coal communities and sure that's that's part of the conversation it is but actually um when there's an ownership geographically particularly in rural and regional communities that value add on our traditional strengths i think there's actually this really kind of dynamic conversation yep. we can have yep. which is actually really exciting 
Um, and obviously efficiency is part of that, but it's not the only part. And it goes back to what I said right at the start, which is how we're going to build the industrial future of our nation. Um, and if we start to see it that way, um, I think, you know, you get a quite a rap trend, uh, uh, quite a change in thinking, but it's also a really exciting one. So long as it's not based on false sort of economic foundations. And this goes to the role of organisations like Arena, because if you work with the, the, the folk that are, you know, the, canning the fruit demonstrate how you can do you know low temperature heat um you can, with heat pumps um you can you know integrate that into process change with energy efficiency you know link that to on-site or off-site renewables and sort of drive that decarbonization journey on a different site demonstrate how it can be done and it doesn't blow up your business and then disseminate that across that sort of subset of the industrial sector that's how you can you can start to build a level of confidence and unlock that investment that you're talking about well it's not just unlock that investment but you know over um uh summer I was reading a lot of literature in this space, some of which I was you know, interested in catching up on, which I haven't had a chance to read in the past couple of years. And, you know, there, there are a couple of things that really stood out to me looking and you know, reading from you know, people who I've traditionally had some disagreements with, like Ross Garno, um, through to um, Dan Jurgen's book, The New Map, which focuses on en- the economic history of energy. Um, but it's actually how do we build a constituency mm-hmm. for change um, where people are very much voluntary participants, but of course, Early wins only do one thing, which is build confidence. Mm. And of course, if you try and impose big wins um, or you try and fail, um, it can have devastating impacts for people's confidence. But if you build that constituency and you have a strong track record, actually what people do is not just they're prepared to have bigger ambition, but in addition to that, um, every risk seems comparatively smaller. I've got a question here from, from Alan Pears, who if you haven't come across Alan there, is one of the uh, the elder statesmen of the energy efficiency space, having been researching this space for over 40 years. He's, uh, he's hey, got I'm... a bit of a dilemma for you, um, mm-hmm. which is how does Tim address the situation where many businesses reject energy efficiency investments with one to three year paybacks, um, minus 100 or better cost of avoided carbon, but are now paying $50 a tonne for carbon offsets? Alan's point is that's not very economically efficient, but um, yeah. I guess businesses are, are taking the straightforward answer even even when it's not necessarily in their their economic best interests yeah and and um and that's why i come back to that point around finance you know uh, the thing that always struck me when i was um when i went back you know years and years and years ago back to doing carbon accounting um over a decade ago the thing that you know stood out to me very quickly was that um how much value actually got and in fact this is one of part of our recent um, grants programs is if companies do their own essentially emissions um, audit in practice what they'll do is actually really identify economic efficiencies where it's better for them to fix it and the emissions conversation just happens to be incidental because so much of it ultimately comes back to your scope one emission uh, scope one scope two emissions and um, and how you can reduce that Uh, and so I think um, that firstly businesses need to obviously properly understand their options um, but then secondly, we've got to say, okay, well, how are we going to be an enabler for people to bring those kind of um, uh, return on investment um, uh, capital mobilisation exercises um, to address um, that? Because I think more than anything else, inside a lot of businesses, outside of the initial um, audit, uh, and maybe somebody, depending on the size of the business, who might deal broadly with sustainability, these are big tasks, right? Mm. Um, and this is one of the things that you know really came out of studying this course I did at Oxford was looking at the different sectors and what's going on. And this is before I had this job 
um, for Clary. So, of course, now having to learn even faster um, is, you know, the volume of commitment that a business needs to have to drive these sorts of change, particularly when they, the, um, their capital allocations might only might occur on cycles every two or three years and what they're reasonably going to be able to change and whether they have the skills within the business to do it. And I think that's a part of what drives it because in the end, you know, my primary purpose is to make um, potato chips or uh, canned tuna or, yeah, yeah. or um, you know, whatever it is. And we don't have these skills inside. And so the more you build the skill base, the more that's competitive, the more people then choose those options rather than frankly what, you know, is actually Alan's point, which is essentially it's almost, and I say this with the greatest respect businesses that do this, um, is it's it's not our core business. This is a lazy solution to a problem for us, um, even though we'd be better off putting up the upfront capital. And I think that's our conversation and why the, the finance piece is important because it enables that conversation for business to have to say, okay, well, maybe we can take advantage of this rather than just being off our own steam. And I also think that, you know, the cavalcade of net zero commitments, um, which I've really welcomed over the last 18 months, it's a prompt for that sort of high-level executive buy-in for change. Then you sort of have these nesting dolls underneath of which energy management, energy efficiency is a, is a piece of how you make that, how you go on that journey along with, you know, renewables and demand management and all, and all the rest of it. Um, and, 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 but it goes back to that point we're also making about commercial buildings and everything as well, which is you get at the ASX, you know, um, top 200 companies fully embracing, this, you know, these challenges as part of their business models. Mm. You're both, there'll obviously be a lot of learning as there will be internationally, but there'll also be the skills, which will then mean for smaller businesses, they have other options um, as it moves down the supply chain. So, um, so I, you know, I know that people will always be frustrated. Things don't necessarily move as fast as they want, but I sometimes think we kind of underestimate the scale of what it is that not just we, but the world are trying to achieve. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really mean that it's, you know, this is going to be one of the great periods of economic transition in human history. Uh, yeah. And one that's very exciting, but it, you know we shouldn't be um, completely paper over the, the the practical realities of it. They're going to be what most of us are going to dedicate our adult lifetime to. Indeed. Well, look, um, Tim, thank you for how generous you've been with your time on a on a very busy day. It's been fantastic just hearing you think out loud about some of these issues that we're so passionate about, and which you um, now have courage of on behalf of the government and uh, particularly in the lead up to a federal election. So I'll say what I'm saying to every politician I speak to uh, over the next couple of months. Good luck for the election. Oh, well, thanks, Luke. And it's always great to chat and I look forward to it. You're quite good at this, you know. (laughs) (laughs) We should do it more often. Indeed. You're welcome back anytime, Tim. (laughs) Oh, you're too. Have a great day and thank you for the good wishes. All right. Well, that wraps up this episode of First Fuel. If you have comments, you can find us on Twitter. As always, you'll find Tim at Tim Wilson MP, and my handle is at Luke Menzel. And to keep up to date on the latest in energy efficiency, energy management, and demand response, you'll find the Energy Efficiency Council at eec.org.au. Make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing to First Fuel in your podcast app of choice. And to learn more about the show, including upcoming live recordings, visit ec.org.au forward slash podcasts. But for now, it's goodbye from us and we'll catch you soon.